It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. the fun of this uh, podcasting <laughs> experiment, Chris. Is, this is like jazz. We're just improvising. Yeah, it's totally jazz. This is a jazz. This is act, that's what th- this is the funny thing is people think this is a climbing podcast, but it's actually a jazz podcast. <laughs> just like there's our new outro. <laughs> jazz. <laughs> We'd have to change our voices though, because jazz guys, you know, we got to get down here. Yeah, welcome to the uh, runout. <laughs> We're gonna put on some Thelonious Monk, some smooth from jazz from Birdland, nineteen fifty six. This is Irby Hancock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, um, Chris, have you ever partied at a climbing area? I have a number of times. Have you ever like, partied like up on a cliff? Um, I have actually, <laughs> I mean, I've taught, I've partied on top of a Mesa. Have you ever brought a keg up on a cliff? Did we have? No, but we had a grill. Yeah. I've, uh, I've done that before. I've had a keg up on a cliff. Um, we actually fixed, it was like a little pony keg and we fixed it in this wide crack. And for a few years <laughs> you could like clip a sling to it and, and like, um, it was a, a piece of gear. Of all of this being illegal, that's kind of the setup I'm getting at. But it's not illegal always cool and irresponsible. To, illegal and irresponsible. It's not always cool to like you know haul uh, a rave up onto into the, uh, like a climbing crag or a climbing cliff or climbing area mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, but that was kind of came to the front of my mind recently because I was on this text exchange uh, a few days ago, and it's it's actually. It was one of these text exchanges that was somewhat insulting to be a part of because um, of the company that right. I was with. I, I'm having a hard time like figuring out how to say this delicately because I, I like and respect all the people on the on the text thread I was on, but they are, let's say, at a different stage in life. Mm, no, maybe that's one aspect, but they're also just like more, I don't know, less fun than I am. I'm pretty fun, Chris, don't you think? (laughs) You're a total gas. Yeah, I'm a riot. I'm a walking riot. Yeah, so I was like on this text exchange with a bunch of uh, stiffs. And, you know, I was like, huh. Bunch of squares. Yeah, bunch of phonies. If you want to go into like uh, Catcher in the Rye speak, a bunch of phonies. I thought I was like the fun party guy that everyone came to, but apparently mm-hmm. not. I'm, I'm like, now I'm like the opposite of that. I'm the cop who people are coming to when they have a complaint about other people having fun and partying. And so that <laughs> okay. was the, the theme of this text exchange I was on. Um, and it, it all involved, a, you know, a rave that was going down at a climbing area nearby. Uh, we don't need to say what it was or where it was, but you could probably figure it out. Which climbing area is nearby you, Andrew? I you wonder. Know, there's so many. There's so <laughs> many, Chris. And, you know, the the gist of the text exchange was like, this is not cool. This is kind of illegal. This could get climbers in trouble. Should we be doing something about it? That was It was kind of posing a question about like, what, what are we going to do about this 
fact that there's these young kids out there having a rave party all night. And yeah, so I thought that was kind of interesting. And um, I had, I found myself having some quite, some like rather mixed feelings about the whole thing, because this is a topic that we've talked about a bunch on the show about the idea of like what it means to be a self-policed or self-regulated community. You know, I've certainly expressed views that um, suggest that I would much prefer the climbing world to be self-regulated as opposed to, you know, the man or the, you know, the government or some, mm-hmm. something like that deciding what regulations mean and, and how to police climbers and so forth. But here I am confronted with the opportunity to, you know, be the cop, you know, be like the self-regulating community. And I found myself confronted with something that I was really uncomfortable with, which is I'm not going to be the guy who's going to go out there and say, Hey, you, Hey, you kids, like this isn't cool. You know, shut your party down. Um, you know, this could, this looks bad on the climbing world and so forth. And, so yeah, I found I, I just thought that was an interesting tension that I hadn't really considered. Like in the abstract, I, I think it's in generally better for climbers to police ourselves and to be the bosses of ourselves. But when you're you know, the rubber meets the road, you know, do I want to be that cop? And and I found myself very much in the camp of no, fuck no, I'm not going to do that. Um, so I am coming to you, my uh, my my partner in podcasting and. <laughs> discussion partner to help me work through this conundrum that I find myself in. What should I do, Chris? Oh man, I know you're, I know the feeling. I mean, God, it even extends to like something I've talked about elsewhere. I may, may actually, I think it was you and I maybe on a taps on the enormous cast of like, what, what do you do when you see people like even just acting stupid climbing wise, mm-hmm. you know, like, where's the threshold of intervening with like people doing the wrong thing, even safety wise? Like, is it so bad that they're imminently going to die or, you know, do you just step in and, and yeah. So, and there, and, and I've, I've like talked to plenty of people for whom it's very uncomfortable to, to do that. And also the reaction is often very negative, especially with uh, approaching a certain type of man who is, you know, very much wound up in, in being a certain type of climber and trying to correct them is doesn't go well. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of an extension of that. Like, do you, yeah. Do you be the, the stick in the mud curmudgeon to sort of shut things down? I mean, what would you do? I mean, would, would it really like literally involve you driving out there in the middle of the night (laughs) and like, you know, turning off the generator and like <laughs> shooing everybody away or do you know what I mean? Like all you can really do is even then is like dirty looks and disdain. And, uh, I mean, again, short of like going out there and confronting them. Um, we were, we were but, talking but about like, like what, what we could actually like do f- turn and we, fire hoses on them. <laughs> well, no, we were, we were thinking that it would be fun to just like prank call the cops in town mm-hmm. and be like, and just leave like very cryptic messages. Yeah. Like it's going down tonight in the cave. It's going down in the cave. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> They'd be like, what? <laughs> I've said too much. <laughs> um, no, you're right. Like, there, like, what would you actually do? But I mean, like, uh, there's a lot I can do. I have a platform. I, I have a website. Mm-hmm. I could, you know, I can, I, I'm, you know, I can reach out to these people privately, even if it's not like pulling the plug on the generator, you know, you could say something in the aftermath, like, Hey, this, 
you know, if you guys ever got caught partying out here, you know, after hours when this park is supposed to be shut, that could look badly on the climbing world. You know, the Mm -hmm. access issues are already tenuous. Um, you know, you could say something very simple and, and kind of kind like that, but even that I, I find myself just not wanting to be that dude. Like, I don't want to do that. Um, like I, I don't agree with, with it, but I've just, like I said, I've, I've been in that stage of life. I've left pony kegs up on cliffs that, you know, we've drunk and thrown grills off the second pitch of, you know, (laughs) of cliffs that we've had you know parties on and stuff like that of course we cleaned up our mess and everything was fine um but you know it, i don't know i've been in that stage of life and and i would be a real hypocrite to try to take that kind of experience away from people who uh, haven't had that yet yeah but the other thing you have to consider too is that you know it's pretty easy to be outraged and then to sort of wind out the possibilities you know this could threaten the access in the park and you know the truth is is that like this in in specifically this particular thing like if it did get you know for some reason the cops were called in and it did i mean would it really shut that place down mm-hmm. to climbers i mean right it yeah, might kind of add this man. little yeah it's like might add this little modicum of resentment that you know i think the 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 locals feel already but i doubt even that like cuz i don't think it would go beyond that mm-hmm. and i it would just pretty much annoy the cops that had to drive out there and deal with it right so and that's the thing is like does it you got to kind of like am i just outraged because i'm yeah i'm i'm creating this boogeyman sort of situation or 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 I just don't like the style of what mm. they're doing, like because that's not what I would do. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, what's I think the reality versus like the outrage. Yeah, I because think I imagine. You, it, yeah, what you're saying is I'm that sort it's of like, outraged, and I'm 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 sort of like it's annoying and it's stupid. But we can get to why it's stupid, but it, but that doesn't like send me to like, oh my god, it's going to end the climbing in that place forever or right. anything like that. It's a bad example because it's the stakes yeah. aren't aren't that high in reality, right? Um, and yeah, but I can so give me, you an example that like where it did lead to to a closure. Please do. I mean, well, th- I wanted to talk a little bit about this weird thing too, where like there's like this intoxication of the freedom that we feel sometimes in the wilderness, especially when we're. And I, I, this totally applies to the area we're talking about. And, and mine is, as usual, going to be Indian Creek. Um, and the reason I have so many stories from there is because it's the place I've climbed the longest mm-hmm. consistently. But anyway, you know, it's like for some reason we sort of get intoxicated with it. And, and we suddenly like, I don't know, it's, it's hard to explain. But like if, if someone asks you like, why do you love Indian Creek? You'd be like, oh, it's because it's beautiful and it's quiet and like you get to have these wilderness experiences. But at some point, our like mind crosses the line to like, let's have a giant fucking party with super loud music as if we were in a city and indoors. (laughs) Only let's do it here in this place that I supposedly love for its quietude. (laughs) And it it happens everywhere. Like it, it, it's, it's like I said, we just, it's like if we can have you know, if we could build like a, a skate park out here on the desert, we'll do it. Like whatever it is, it's like we we will try to transform this place to meet our needs that are not 
just quietude and wilderness. Mm -hmm. And there was a camping area that people my age and a little younger will remember that's on the way into the Bridger Jacks, which is a camping area still, but it was right off the road. Everybody just called it like Slick Rock or I can't remember what we called it, but conspicuously, it was pretty close to the dugout ranch that's down there, which is um, sort of the arbiters and were the, sort of the arbiters of some of the access down there. Um, it's owned by the Nature Conservancy now, but I think they always had a little bit of a problem with it because, you know, at night voices carry and, you know, you could see fires up on this little hillside, even though it was probably like a quarter mile away. But then it just it just like grew and grew. And then a certain person just, you know, either it broke down or they just didn't want to move. It just left this great big van there for all the time. Like it was parked there year round. Uh, maybe it broke down. And then there was parties and there was like a band and there was like this sort of thing with, you know, pulling out generators and pumping out techno music. And eventually it closed down. It's mm -hmm. like, that's what happened. It's like, right the 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 you know it was sort of on i think it probably was on its last legs anyway but it was all by the grace of the of the the dugout ranch that it was there at all right um and then it certainly was the case that that some of these sorts of shenanigans finally pulled the plug on it maybe an eventuality anyway but there's a very i think well-traveled photo of of a, of a guy sitting outside his van playing a drum kit in Indian Creek. Mm -hmm. That was at the Slick Rock right. area for sure. Um, yeah, but and, I, and it's funny because the, 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 the photo itself, that's like the, the appeal of it in this weird way is like, ha ha, he brought a drum kit out into the desert. Like cool. Like, do you know what I mean? Like he, he broke this kind of like barrier of where a drum kit should be. And therefore it made a great picture, mm -hmm. but it also sort of got that area closed down. Right. So, you know, good job that you were like, I got to play my drums out here in the desert, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so it's, a t it's, it's obviously a fine line. I mean, like I, right. you say I, you don't need a drum kit out in the desert, but my response to that is like, maybe you do like, maybe yeah, you maybe do maybe every you do. now and then. Like, I and think if I had cool. walked by when he was playing his drum kit, I'd be, if he was any good, <laughs> I'd have been like, Oh, that's cool. <laughs> He's got his drum kit out. Check that out. If he sucked, I'd been like, dude, you can put <laughs> what are your you drum doing? kit away. <laughs> um, that's a whole other issue yeah I, th I you make a good point i mean i think that the stakes are probably pretty low like nothing was really at stake at this in this instance mm -hmm. but it just i think that just to pull back to the broader issue of self-policing self-regulating whatever you want to call it like this idea that as a community we we have in our power um this ability to kind of tell ourselves when we're going too far and um and you know apply the appropriate restraints in order to keep you know places like that from closing down and um i'm a little rattled by the idea that it's just a little harder than it sounds like on paper and mm -hmm. um i'm certainly maybe it's because the stakes were low in this instance that i was so unwilling to be the guy to you know say the the rational you know kind of sober thing at that moment but um yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I just am questioning the logic around what that means, but I'm very, very averse to any of the alternatives. Like, I don't think there's anything better than that, but I, I, I'm just a little um, shaken by the idea that maybe it's not quite as easy as, as I previously considered. Right. And I, and I feel like there's like this kind of mob style 
thing to some some of this stuff. Yeah. Where yeah, I think a lot of people probably are uncomfortable with something like that. But all of us are are in, you know, this position of like going along with it sometimes or yeah, or just tucking your tail and and rolling your eyes and and leaving. I mean, the other alternative is obviously in this day and age is the is the social media public shaming. Right. Which I think neither one of us is that comfortable with either. <laughs> you Definitely know? not. So yeah, I mean, yeah, let, I mean, I let guess... me just riff on that for a second because I yeah. wouldn't. I knew that this this event was happening and it, it didn't bother me. But then, because I got this text on like the no fun guy text exchange, right. then I saw you know, oh, <clears throat> there's other people who do have a problem with this, and so maybe mm-hmm. I should too. And so I started thinking about it, like you know, and I it could have been 50-50 on any given day where, I, you know, maybe I was in a foul mood and I'd be like, yeah, fuck those guys. Let's sh- let's call them out and like burn it all down, you know? And so no one right. does this because I have this righteous wing, you know, wind behind my back to, yeah, because the the righteous thing is like you, you do, you're on the right side, like to just say like, don't do this. This could cause an access issue. So I could see getting swept up in that mentality and it is like kind of contagious like one it all it takes is like one person to be like does anyone else have a problem with this like maybe we should all have a problem with this and then all of a Mm -hmm. sudden everyone has a problem with it but it it may not be a big deal yeah i know i know that that total feeling because then like i said you have to kind of is it just me and my style that has a problem with this you know because that's not how i like to operate out in the wilderness Mm -hmm. um so it's like it's kind of like dumbassery as far as I'm concerned but you know I also have expressed on here like my counterculture nature to for climbers and and that also is sort of a um a contradiction to to this self-policing thing mm-hmm. you know because I personally like kind of err on the side of like yeah just you know as long as you are you know, you're not damaging the natural resources in some some way or 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 but I guess this does kind of cross the line because I do have a little bit of problem with completely fucking with um with access to a place. Yeah. So I don't know. It's it's a little I, I get your I get your tension and that's mine is is that idea of like we should be free thinking counterculture and do what we want as long as, you know, quote unquote nobody gets hurt. And you also make um, the right decision when you do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. So, I mean, I don't know. It's it's an interesting thing because, yeah, we, we're, we're going to sit here and be like, we can handle it. Our climbers are good and they don't they don't fuck up that much. But, of course, the, the world has plenty of evidence of, of that being the opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, as we were talking earlier, uh, you kind of brought up that example of the petroglyph bolter dude who... Mm-hmm. And and on that podcast from over a year ago now, um, we kind of came to the conclusion like the climbing's just getting so big that inevitably there's just going to be complete idiots who we can't control. And so the, the that was like another you know tally in the in the column of like the, the idea of self regulation is becoming is a little bit more difficult than we might imagine just because of the sport being so big and inevitably there's just going to be idiots out there who fuck things up for everyone. So I don't know what what that adds to the the discussion at all, but I think it's just another it's just another complication to what we're talking about. And also this this idea that like we're all like these, you know, 
nature loving like that's like the essence of climbing outdoors is to be in nature and and enjoy the quietude and and all that and i think that that's super naive too that's like a that's like a model from 1969 or something like that Mm -hmm. as well right (laughs) that's completely blown apart yeah um yeah i mean most people would just die for a a quiet night under the stars you know they'll talk all about that but then this group of people was like no 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 we need to do drugs and fucking play super loud music and bring uh, our starlings so that generator. We're, we're on instagram the whole time right exactly so you know that element is in is is stronger and stronger and stronger but also i mean climbers have always partied mm-hmm. and always done as much as they could to kind of live that lifestyle even in the outdoors so mm-hmm. um I mean, this isn't the first time this has happened. No, so no. This is like this is the third or fourth in my own memory. Yeah. Of of these uh, these gatherings, so maybe they're right in that that nobody cares. Well, I guess where I'm left um, is party on, <laughs> but don't party so hard that you close climbing. <laughs> Graham Zimmerman is an alpinist, a recipient of the PLA d'Or, and a director at Protect Our Winners. His new book is A Fine Line, Searching for Balance Among Mountains. All right, so we're here with Graham Zimmerman, and uh, you've just written a new book called A Fine Line, which Chris and I have both read, and well done on writing a book. That's an achievement unto itself, but I also found it to be quite well written, and um, an enjoyable kind of, you know, addition to the mountaineering literature genre. So congrats to you. Andrew, thanks. And uh, it's it's an honor to be here. And I'll, I'll say it's an honor to know that you read the book. It's, it is the first time I have engaged with a project like this. And it's, it's worth this really interesting inflection point where it is getting ready to kind of launch into the world. And I thought I would have this moment of relief of, oh, it's done and finished and I can be done with it. And I, I am instead finding myself feeling like, oh, shit, people are actually going to read the thing. And uh, so uh, those compliments are taken very close to my heart. Thank you. Yeah. Well, we're not going to just bring you here and shit on your first book and tell you that uh, it sucks, but so. we, might, we might press you on some other things, though. Down we'll, When I wait. Yeah. I'll yeah. wait to do that when we I meet you in the wild. Um, yeah. so. <laughs> Sweet. That would be, wouldn't that be, that would be amazing podcasting, um, but it would make us terrible people. <laughs> Surprise, Surprise, bitch. Yeah, your book was terrible. And here's a part I didn't like, and here's another part. <laughs> anyway, thanks for coming on, Graham. Um, well, it's really nice to be here. <laughs> Before we uh, talk about the book and anything else you'd like to mention about it, but uh, maybe you could just uh, introduce yourself to our listeners who may or may not know who you are and give them a background on kind of the climbing that you do and what you're maybe known for in the climbing climbing space. Yeah, I'd love to. So my name's Graham Zimmerman. I live in Bend, Oregon. And uh, let's see, I've been alpine climbing for about 20 years now. It's really been the the thing that has defined my adult life, and I guess it's fair to say I've been pretty successful with it. Um, I've taken like 
30 to 40 expeditions around the world, um, a lot of time focused in Alaska and a lot of time focused in Pakistan. And in those places, we've had some big successes. Um, in Alaska, we did a lot of exploration in an area called the Lacuna that was really, really special that kind of sits behind Mount Foraker on the far side of Kehilton Base Camp and had some, had some really, really great climbs back there. And then, uh, and then in 2015, I started focusing on climbing in the Pakistani Karakoram, which, in my humble opinion, are the baddest ass mountains on the planet, and the place the place where like some of the best alpine climbing is. It's huge terrain. It's steep terrain. It's primarily composed of granite. There's not that much snow. It's like perfect for for alpine climbing, um, particularly technical alpine climbing. And uh, so, took a bunch of trips over there. And I feel like I could like sit here and spray about awards won or climbs or whatever but i think that it's critical for me to really share the the best outcomes of my climbing are partnership and community um as i as i look at the time spent in the big mountains of the world it's it's really the partnerships that that stand out as as the thing that is that is the most valuable the thing that has come from those from those expeditions that has been been the best and that's that's partnerships with climbing partners um of course and it's also partnership with communities in those areas the other the other component that has been uh finding a voice in terms of advocacy which has turned into a big part of what i do so right now i'm I'm actually on staff over at protect our winners and and working on and on climate advocacy over there primarily my role with that organization is working to empower professional athletes in the outdoor rec economy in order to utilize their voices to drive climate action, particularly systemic climate climate action. And then I also do a lot of work with the American Alpine Club where we're engaging with our community to empower them, give them tools, give them places to gather, keep them safe, keep them psyched. And uh, my role over there right now is president of the, uh, of the board, which I'll be there for, I guess, till the beginning of next year. Great. So you say you're Graham Zimmerman, but you are conspicuously missing a mustache that yeah, I yeah, associate I with say. your face. So yeah. how do we know that we, that we're actually talking to Here, I'll, I'll, put my, I'll put my finger up and you can see that it's actually me. Um, yeah, the uh, the mustache. This is this is a crucial discussion point. Um, I had a mustache for, I think, about 13 years, um, certainly through uh, all of my professional climbing career and uh, and also it is worth noting through my entire relationship with my now wife um so when i cut it off which has been within the last six to 12 months it was the first time that my wife or really most of the world had seen me without a mustache so um it's you know i think we kind of reached a point where it's time for time for a new phase in terms of uh, how my face looks, and uh, and it's it's overall been positive. Um, I, I am enjoying having a freed upper lip. So thanks thanks for asking, Andrew. Yeah, yeah I can't know, take my eye off that lip right now. <laughs> I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to like I'm gonna shut your cam off just because I can't concentrate. <laughs> Who is this guy? Oh my gosh! I'm kind of lazy with shaving and it like comes back in a little bit and there will be every time that that happens, somebody will be like, Oh my God, is it coming back? It's like, no, <laughs> just, just kind of a lazy person who doesn't shave all the time. Uh, you clearly shaved for us though. So I did. I did. <laughs> Even though we don't do video. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. One would imagine that after writing a book, you would perhaps grow a new facial hair configuration, but you went 
you decided to just well, this is get new, rid of all of it. Uh, yeah, I guess no hair is a is a new hair facial configuration. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> all right, enough of uh, enough of that. <laughs> um, let's uh, let's talk about a, a climb that you write about in your book, and I think it's probably maybe your biggest climb to date um, of Linksar. You guys won the PLA for that, and um, it was a pretty proud achievement. Um, and it's kind of the antithesis of the you know, the, um, Everest style expedition climbing, you know, kind of a remote peak that no one's ever heard of, um, unclimbed peak, I believe. And, uh, one of the tallest unclimbed peaks in the world at that time. How did that trip get started? What, what was kind of the highs and lows for you on that? And, um, tell us a bit about that, that expedition. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll start. I'll start at the beginning, which uh, the first time I saw Linksar was from another first ascent in the Karakoram of a peak called Changi Tower, and um, we were high. We were high on Changi Tower, making that first ascent. That was me and Scott Bennett and Steve Swenson, and we looked over and we could see the south um, east face of Linksar, and it was something that I had known about. It was a peak that I. It's kind of it's kind of part of the the kind of like hard alpine climbing vernacular it was a peak that was sort of known as like one of the one of the uh kind of last great problems and looking over at it and kind of looking down at at a lot of that face we were able to see a pretty clear line to the summit and i was up there with steve swenson who had actually tried the southeast face before back in uh it was either 2000 or 2001 so it really spurred this motivation to go and try to climb that thing. And just to kind of break that down a little bit, I really find that the best way to find new hard routes in the big mountains of the world is to go spend time in the big mountains of the world. Like most of the things that I've climbed that have been kind of remarkable have actually been things I've spotted from, from other routes like that. So, um, when people people oftentimes ask like how do you find this kind of thing it's like you gotta you gotta go and you gotta look and so we went we looked and we saw something incredible and in 2017 steve and i went together with my climbing partner chris wright who is another alpinist who lives here in bend oregon and we spent the summer trying the southeast face the weather that summer was bad so we did not get particularly high on the peak we got to about six thousand meters primarily due to to bad weather, actually entirely due to bad weather. And uh, that so that while that trip was in many ways not a success, at least in terms of the climbing, we did solve a lot of the problems of how to get onto the face, how to climb the lower half of the face. And then in 2007, or sorry, 2019, we returned um, the three of us plus another guy, Mark Ritchie, and, and were successful on that expedition. And we, I could spend this the next hour talking about that climb and why it was really special. It was a climb that that had some really, really cool, hard technical climbing on it. It had some super fucked up snow climbing on it. Um, it had some really serious moments of uncertainty, including uh, me taking a 100 plus foot fall about 300 feet below the summit, which is really not recommended. But I think the thing that's that I really that I really uh, this is kind of going back to the partnership thing. It was really this cool climb because Chris and I are young technical climbers. We've both done a ton of alpine climbing, but but our what we really bring to the fold is a lot of a lot of kind of modern climbing attitude, a lot of modern 
climbing technique. Whereas Mark and Steve, they're they're much older. They were both in their 60s on this climb, which is pretty bananas. And they brought this old school kind of ability to strategize about a much larger expedition about how to effectively leverage an advanced base camp in order to set yourself up for success higher on the mountains, how to be really patient when conditions aren't quite right. And you actually just have to sit there for like three weeks and let the mountain cure and get into better shape. And um, this climb on Linksar really required both of those skill sets from top to bottom which was really cool. It was really cool to be on a climb where, you know, I was able to like utilize my strengths as, you know, young, strong, technical alpine climber or young, youngish, rel- relatively young, but then also really lean into the strengths of some of these guys who have been spending time in these mountains for like, you know, 40, 50 years. And, uh, and so it was, that was, that was like, that was the thing that was kind of the most remarkable for me. And it was, it was really, it was, it was, really exemplified right on the summit when Chris had just finished his, or he was, he was at the top of his lead block and um, we were just below the summit and he was up in this really intense, mildly overhanging snow climbing and he couldn't quite figure it out. And he was, you know, we were up at over 7,000 meters. You know, he was pooped. Um, I had just recently taken a massive fall, so I wasn't really leading anything and there was this moment where Steve and Mark hadn't led anything up into that point, which had kind of been to plan. But Mark is like, I think I know what to do here. And he gets out this old skill set from climbing in the Peruvian Andes in his younger years, a place where snow climbing can get pretty, pretty dang rowdy. And he like pulls off his backpack and a gets down to just a shell and starts just like sort of swimming up this overhanging snow to the summit. And it was this really incredible moment because I don't know if, if it had just been Chris and I, if we would have actually gotten there, maybe we would have figured it out. I'm not, I'm not sure it's, you know, it's impossible to say, but as, as it worked out, it was this kind of old school climbing technique that, that Mark had in his back pocket. And at the same time we were trying to find an anchor to start rappelling off the mountain. And Steve is like, digging into the mountain we have this anchor that's just kind of all this garbage stuck in the snow and he's like digging into the mountain and right around when mark gets to the top steve finds this vein of ice kind of deep in the mountain and it was this it was this moment like right at the top where mark got us to the summit and steve got us headed down safely um and after that you actually part of the anchor at that point I, uh, yeah, yeah, it. I was, uh, <laughs> yeah, Chris, good, good memory. Uh, I was part of, yeah, I think, I think as I remember it, I got up to Chris's anchor and was like, wow, this is, this is bullshit. Um, which is not a judgment on him is rather just like, there was really no anchor available. And so I just kind of dug a hole and climbed into it and sat there as, as the anchor for about, for about an hour. <laughs> which right. So it's critical that they find something else to repel off. Of. Yeah. Yeah. I would, <laughs> I would rather not be the, um, you know, the, the actual, literal dead man, actual dead man. Yeah. So it's yeah. like to keep that metaphorical. Um, <laughs> well, um, I, I was interested in, in this book be, in terms of like, I, I'm, you know, like most climbers, I guess that have been here long enough and with the literary bent, you know, I'm steeped in the, the tomes of the past, you know, the great, the great mountaineering books. And, uh, this was kind of felt like the first one I read that's coming from a modern 
perspective, as you said, about the way you and Chris climb, um, mostly because, you know, you're, you're now at an age where you have enough to reflect on to write a book. Um, and you're a lot of your peers either, uh, never have, you know, lived to write a book, unfortunately, which is a big part of your story as well, or they just, you know, they aren't ready yet. You know, you wait till you're, you're old and in your armchair and in front of the fire, um, with your pipe to, to write your book. So this kind of felt like the first one written with the modern perspective. I mean, even there's a, I don't, I can't remember which climb it is, but there's a climb where, you know, you guys are near the top and you whip out your, your, uh, sat phone and, you know, call your then girlfriend. I think she was still your girlfriend at that time. Check in with, with her and then get a, uh, get a forecast, you know? And it's like, I didn't read that in Annapurna, you know, <laughs> or whatever. So, which is interesting because like so much of those older books, like, they, they really crux on the suffering. Like that's really what the books are about. You know, the Boardman Tasker era, early era was just like, just grinding away at these summits. And there's, there's much less of that in your book. I mean, because I think there's much less of that in the modern climbing career in some ways, the fast and light sort of thing is really about avoiding, avoiding that suffering in a lot of ways. I mean, having talked to like Mike Gardner and stuff, it's like, yeah, we, we, try to go fast so we don't have to like freeze our asses off up there and, and get hungry and, and dehydrated, you know? Um, and also we can avoid the storms is really the main thing you pointed out. We can really hit these windows. So and I don't know if you have a comment on that when you're writing it. Um, I'm sure you too, I'm looking at your bookshelf behind you. You're, you're, I'm sure steeped in those books as well. So, um, did you feel like, a little bit of a vibe change. I mean, did you want to, did you want to dig around for more suffering? You know, what, what was sort of like your perspective on writing the modern take on, on, uh, these mountains and also, yeah. you know, what were the, what were the commonalities that you think you, you found in your career? I super appreciate that that's your take because my goal with writing this book was to, to do to like to like move things forward as we as we look at like the best or most influential mountaineering literature it's it's the it's those books that kind of take us forward um in terms of how we're thinking about climbing or the climbs we're taking on and I, I didn't really have any interest in like just writing another mountain climbing book it's a really strong tradition in our community it's something that is that is really special that we have all this long format storytelling. But also I think that that kind of like you shared, I think there's there you end up with some repetition in it. And when I think about the most influential books, for me, it's it's uh it's books like The South Face of Annapurna, um, about like going on that wall. Or, or is it no uh is it Shisha no Shishapangma? Sorry. Oh man, I should I should have reviewed my mountaineering literature before before I dug into this. But the book about the South Face of Shishapangma that they made, they made that ascent in Alpine style. Some of the writing that was really influential for me when I was younger was um you know Mark Twight and Steve House writing about their climbing. It was new, it was fresh, it was something that like had this muscular energy that was leaving behind something from the fast and past and moving things forward. And, and so for me, I, I feel like my, my career, my generation together have, have moved things forward in a number of ways. And my goal with this book was to represent that progression forward. And, 
And like like you said, I mean, the, there are a lot of folks who we've lost in my generation of climbing. Um, I, I say this in the in the intro to the book that that it feels like there are a number of folks who would probably have been better to write about our generation, but they're no longer with us. And so that's that's something I took a lot of responsibility for um, is is trying to move things forward in a way that represents my story, but also but also honors all those folks that we've lost. And, um, and, and, and in some ways asks the next generation or current climbers to, to be really, uh, to be really intentional about their actions in the mountains and, and be safe, but also it doesn't tell them like not to climb. Um, and that's a balancing those two things, like go out there, go big, take, take risks, but also be really fucking smart because these mountains are really dangerous. And that's, that's something that, uh, I mean, I know for all three of us is like a really big part of our relationship with alpine climbing is loss. Um, and it's something that I really tried not to shy away from in this, in this book. And, uh, it was, you know, that was the biggest, that was the biggest challenge, um, was, was capturing, capturing those moments. So, um, yeah, it's yeah, interesting. It's- I mean, you, you may bring up Twite. I don't remember Twite telling me to be safe. Um, at any point in his writing. <laughs> so, so you did change that a little, that vibe anyway, got away from his, his vibe a little bit there. You're much less insulting yeah. than he is too. So, um, <laughs> I mean, I think, and I think that's progression, right? Like yeah. I think that there's some, there's some, uh, and I don't, Mark and I don't know each other. I should, I should call right. that out. Mark, uh, Mark, if you're listening to this sure. and, and you want to hang out, let me know. I'd love to. He's the sweetest dude. But yeah, yeah, if you ever get a chance, um, I mean, he'll hug you. So just be prepared for that. <laughs> I, I, I would, I would love that. Um, I mean, he had, he had a lot of influence on me when I was younger, and it's, and uh, a lot of that influence was really good. But as we look at an update, I think that as, like, mm-hmm. actually, here we can dig into this because you'll, you'll, I think you'll think this is interesting, Chris and Andrew, maybe you too. Um, but uh, I think that we're, you know, when we look at what Mark did and what his generation did, they had this really like aggressive pull away from uh traditional mountain climbing from fixed ropes um from you know dragging sleds up denali or you know sieging mountains into submission and in in order to revolutionize something you oftentimes need to be really aggressive i i recently read thomas kuhn's um the structure of scientific revolutions and it's all about how like this this shit is not uh it's like a slow progression and a, and something is linear it's when you have major revolutions within a within a practice or within science it's something that happens very abruptly and it like it builds 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 and that's boom you have to break into a new phase really aggressively. And that's something that they did. They broke into this modern form of alpine climbing, which has a much better relationship with the mountains, which has a much, much better relationship with mountain communities, all that stuff. And they did so really aggressively. And I feel like what I'm able to do now, what I'm trying to do is to say, hey, listen, like that style is normalized. And let's kind of like, let's move forward in a way that really recognizes that alpine style is the best way to get at the big mountains of the world also we can do it in a way that doesn't just hang it out there you know every time all the time it's really interesting to just reflect on the on the generational shift and also just the generation that you're kind of a part of and 
you know, we, when we think about the last 10 or 15 years of alpine climbing, you know, we were talking about how many folks we've lost and obviously there's, you know, Hayden Kennedy and Kyle Dempster and Scott Adamson and, um, David Lama, Jess Roskilly, um, Hans Jorg, Mark Andre. I mean, it, it feels in a way it was just gutted, like your cohort, your, you know, your peers uh, who are kind of of the same age and of the same kind of interest and, you know, looking into the mountains to do kind of new stuff. And it had a lot of momentum about 10 years ago. And it's been, I think, de- really deflated because of all of this tragedy. So I, I don't know what there is to be said of that, but how did you, do you feel like alpinism is on a decline or just, you know, it just generally like of the generational is your generation on a decline because of that? Or is there, is there new energy, new, new ideas, new people coming into the fold that, um, that are inspiring to you? I think that my generation of climbers or, or like you said, my kind of cohort, which I really like that, like that word was really dealt with a lot of tragedy. And, I remember talking to a few folks at Hayden's memorial and asking, this is some of the, some kind of the old guard being like, Hey, listen, like, is this normal? Is this something that is something that you dealt with? And while, while they shared that, yes, there's loss in climbing, that this level of loss was not something that they had experienced. And it was something for me that, that uh, was a really powerful moment because it was like, wow, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be like, like this. And as we think about the future of climbing, as we think about climbing getting more technical, as we think about the technology getting better, as we think about the climbers getting better, I think there's, there's all sorts of exciting progression in front of us. And the things that get me the most excited are the folks who are being really creative. You mentioned Michael Gardner earlier who's doing some really, really cool stuff where he's climbing technical routes with skis on his back and then making these badass ski descents. As we look at some of the technical rock climbing that's taking place in the big mountains, some of the things that are being enabled by those new blow-up portal edges, things like that. Like, There's all sorts of really cool progression taking place. And it's that's that's stuff that gets me really really excited it's things that um like at some point somebody is going to be able to apply the skill sets to like the big wall on makalu and be able to finally get that project done um people are going to be able to start looking at features that nobody's even really tried before and is going to be able to go and and give them a whirl like the next i i think we're kind of at this really interesting inflection point where i don't even know if we know what the last great problems are right now i mean we could of course list off a few but there's there due to climbers getting better uh the things that are becoming possible in the mountains are, are expanding and that's super super exciting so do i think that alpine climbing is on a decline i actually i actually don't i think that we just have a whole new skill set that is going to the mountains and they're kind of trying to like figure out the best way to utilize those skills and i see this kind of like this sort of stewing um of these people who are really really learning how to how to apply themselves to to that bigger terrain and it's something that that is really exciting like i think the next 10 to 20 years of alpine climbing are are like are something I'm really looking forward to. I mean, I, I agree with you because I mean I've been talking to those guys this year. Um, Mike 
Gardner, you know, I, I talked talk to House and reflected on all those guys. Rob Smith, Sam Hennessy, you know, Jackson Marvel, Chantel Astorga. I mean, there's other other names to throw in this in this mix and and Gilbert as well. I mean, it's it's not just a skill set, you know, um are they substantially better climbers than than, you know, some of the folks from your cohort? I don't think so. I think once again it's a vision um issue of of just having this this breakthrough in vision of of building on, you know, what House and Twight did and Backies and those guys and then building on on what you guys have been doing because they are a little bit younger than you are. They are the next kind of phase. And uh, I mean, there there's others out there. I mean, we, we never can talk about the European people because we just can't, literally like can't keep up with who's the raddest from which country doing what, you know, it's, it's almost impossible. And it's like, we just forget about them because they don't end up in Alaska as much. I mean, all these folks are, all these folks are doing incredible things. And, uh, and when the, like when some of those things that are taking place in Alaska, when those skill sets get transferred to the bigger ranges, it's going to be really exciting. It's something I really, I really look forward to. And, uh, I will say that when I was trying really hard in Alaska, I would get kind of, I would get kind of salty about people saying that things were harder in the in the bigger ranges, and I, I, I will I will share that I'm kind of on the other side of that now. <laughs> things in Pakistan are way harder um, for for just about every every reason, but that is just a progression that lies in front of a lot of these folks that is really exciting. You know, one of the th- other things with talking with Mike Gardner in particular. Um, and he was sort of, you know, speaking for his his group of friends and how they were doing these climbs. And he, you know, also sort of bristles at or insists that there's there's this safe safety margin that they keep. You know, when everyone looked at at them doing this uh, Slovak direct in three pitches or whatever, and you know, <laughs> a screw each pitch and all those sorts of things, it's like it's hard to kind of swallow that like it's done safely. But he had his reasoning, you know, and he he explained it, and I sort of bought some of it, and others other parts I I didn't, and you know, we went on with our discussion, which got to the point of that these things are risky, and and there ain't no way you can make them safe entirely. And that was one thing in your book is that you know you you had this kind of this hundred year plan metaphor that ran through it that that is some advice you got from a, a mentor of sorts and about trying to live to be a hundred and being safe and and uh but i i i sorry but I, I kept being like you know are they like all mountaineers just deluding themselves you know because they they walked they whistled past the graveyard this time and again and a few more times and you're you know on this podcast you're also saying like well i make really good decisions and you know there's there's you know, there's all these mountaineers that that have successful expositions that can tell themselves that until they get wiped out. But with that said, I mean, some of the some of the tragedy of your cohort actually was not based on on great decisions. It was based on on some kind of bad decision. Not everybody, but some of them were based on bad decisions that privately we all discussed and uh, you know didn't necessarily criticize the dead but it goes with the territory sometimes that you have to push the edge um so i mean do you in your darkest hours do you do you wonder if you're deluding yourself about the safety of it all and continuing to do it i know is something that you've juggled a little bit and you've slowed down some but that's kind of natural in your career a little bit um for most most guys that that climb as hard and, and as as big stuff as you do but 
What are your thoughts on the sort of face of like, I'm the safest and I make great decisions and whether or not there's a part of your brain that's like, quit kidding yourself, you could get it any time? So I, I really feel, Chris, like that's kind of one of the key tensions of of the book and mm-hmm. it's very much reflected in my life. If we look at the book, it's, uh, you know, pushing this idea of, making decisions that allow for us to live to be 100 years old. But there are three major accidents in the book and moments that that I very honestly have a hard time with because there are things that, you know, there are things, of course, in retrospect that maybe I could have noticed or uh, done slightly differently. But the biggest hazard is is honestly just being in the mountains, a place, a place with a lot of hazard. And that's, and that tension that is, it's, it's actually really interesting. It's something I didn't really intend to be in the book necessarily. Um, I didn't like write that in the synopsis that I was like, oh yeah, this is like what the book's going to be about. But it's something that, that when I reread it really stood, stood out. And it's something that is very, very true in my own life. And when I look at the scenarios through which we lost um, some some really, you know, these folks we're talking about, some really close friends, some folks that I really, really look up to and really adore. It's really hard for me to say, or it's impossible for me to say, oh, well, I made I made better decisions than them. You know, right. um, you know, I up on Linksar, I tagged the bottom of a little of a little slab that this sent me for a you know hundred foot plus ride. Wow, three thousand meters up a mountain face at like 6,900 meters. Like it's not the kind of thing that you generally walk away from. And, um, and I did, which is, which is, which is wild. Um, I remember I had this conversation with, uh, Dougald McDonald, um, the editor of the American Alpine journal. I was like, yeah, that, you know, that, that a fall on, on links are, he's like, Graham, I gotta be clear. Like we call that an accident. And just because the outcome of the accident wasn't you breaking both your legs or dying doesn't mean it wasn't an accident. You should you should phrase it that way. And that was really helpful for me because it's like, yeah, that was that was an accident. The fact that we were able to keep going is was was not the uh, highest likely. (laughs) So all, all that to say that. I think there is a lot of value in taking risks, I think that living a life of safety, a life in which you kind of keep yourself in the bubble is is not a life in which, at least for me, you learn all that life has to teach you. And I am I am here because I or I'm I'm like like the thing that I want to do in my life is learn. And the thing that I want to do in my life is empower others to learn and to go do badass shit. And I think that honestly, that requires defining this really challenging line of taking risks and sometimes maybe overstepping a little bit, but also really working hard to keep it rubber side down so that you're able to survive and continue the work. And and that's really what my whole life has been all about for the last 20 years is is taking on risk, but just really trying not to fuck it up so that I don't, you know, I don't die. It's interesting because so, you know, we, we cited Mark Twight. Um, I cited the Tasker Boardman, you know, 
late 70s, early 80s era. And like that sort of summit or die thing is, is so seeped in all of that, right? I mean, those guys just definitely often threw caution to the wind. Um, it destroyed their relationships at home. I mean, it was all this stuff, you know, the previous sort of generation. And I'm encouraged, and maybe it's a sobering of, of like we've been talking about this, this most recent decade, but I was encouraged. I didn't roll my eyes as much as I thought when I talked to these guys about their risk-taking because they are, they are backing it up with some real deep consideration of what the risks are. Like I said, at least in, in the face of it, you don't feel that from the first you know, 30 years of, of these alpine breaking the mold kind of climbs as much. Although you know, Michael Kennedy definitely had an attitude of like, bring the kitchen sink so we can survive this kind of thing. But I think there's another component here that's worth discussing, which is those guys have just broken onto the scene over the last few years is doing some incredible things. Mm-hmm. Um, they did not just start climbing. Right. They have immense experience behind them. And I think that's a really big part of, you were talking about that advice that I got from, from Kai, the kind of 100-year plan. And Kai has very much been a sage in my life. He's, he's dear, dear friend. And um, somebody who I call with all sorts of different queries um, about climbing and life and career and whatnot. But um, but I think that a big, a big part of being able to define that line and push those boundaries is to have a huge well of experience. And that takes a long time. And that's, it's this thing that uh, I think is really crucial that we talk about is for, you know, for young climbers getting into it, it's like, listen, take your time and survive those initial years, those initial trips to the mountains. You know, don't, don't hang it out all the way. Because the thing that you're building is not like a resume of hard first descents. That is not what actually matters if you want to survive and go do really big, challenging things. What you need is experience and you need to survive. And so I think it's interesting for me to reflect on that. And, and this is sort of me spitballing a little bit. So sorry that sorry this is kind of coming out just as I think, I think of it. But as I look at my career, I had some really early successes on, on things like Mount Bradley. And I hadn't been climbing for that long. 2010, when I heard my first kind of like splash as an alpinist on, in Alaska, I'd been climbing for about five or six years. And as I look at the experiences that I am most fortunate to have survived, it's, essentially, it's, it's effectively those first years. And as I built up a larger volume of, of experience, I was able to make better decisions. It's not to say that like the risk necessarily went down, but my ability to manage that risk increased. And I see that with like, if you look at Rob, Rob has been climbing a ton. As you look at Alan, Alan has been climbing for a long time. Uh, same with Sam and Michael and Gilbert and Chantel. Like they all have really long climbing careers. Together. Chantel and I were on Yosar together back in like 2009. And she, you know, and she's somebody who's like, in in like you know in the last like decade has been really able to to start climbing like super hard in the big mountains it takes a long time and it's and i think that if i were to kind of like frame that up in something concise i would say that that is the reason that i don't consider for climbing to be a sport or alpine climbing at least to be a sport i consider it to be a practice it's something that we build into our lives in a meaningful and sustainable way so that we can keep doing it and that's how we get better um, it's more like a martial art than it is like, you know, a, a sport. Um, and, and that's what it's all about. And that's, uh, 
and seeing some folks who are really young and have these like flash in the pan careers where they do something incredible when they're young, you know, young in the big mountains um, is always something that freaks me out versus seeing somebody like um, Michael Gardner, who's like been spending a ton of time in the Alaska range. Like that guy spent so much time in those mountains. And then once he had that huge well of knowledge and experience, he went, he started trying some really radical shit. And, uh, and hence he has the knowledge and the experience to do some things that to the rest of us feel like they're totally bananas, like climbing the Slovak in three pitches. So just fucking survive cool. and you'll get better at climbing. <laughs> That's what it's all about. <laughs> Wise words. One comment that we've heard when, when we have these discussions is it's, I think it's unclear to a lot of young climbers how you get started in this world and just going on an expedition is not just expensive, but logistically challenging and, and then to do it, you know, multiple times a year for a decade or so is also just isn't obvious how you how you pull that off in terms of the finances and so forth. So can you reveal any of the secrets that go into being able to pursue this kind of hobby? Yeah, I'd love to. And I think that's really one of the things that is it's a trust fund, isn't it? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. You have, you have to have a trust fund. No, um, uh, definitely, definitely would help. Um, but as somebody who very much does not have a trust fund, um, there are, there are ways to figure it out. And the thing that I have really discovered over my career and something I really tried to capture in the book is that that's, that's where that balance component comes in. Um, particularly for climbing in the bigger mountains, it is really expensive uh those those trips to pakistan for a team cost you know 30 to forty thousand dollars um between you know kind of across the team um it's like it's a lot of a lot of money and and i and i also think that you know the kind of traditional route or um oftentimes thought of route of finding sponsorship to just pay for that is something that does work for some folks but is a pretty like it's pretty fraught um, I think that there is there's a lot of reason to have uh, partners in the in the uh, industry, uh, folks who maybe can provide you support or gear or whatever. And that's that's awesome. It's something that I've that I've really benefited from. But as we look at kind of my background, as I speak anecdotally about how I got into this world, it has really been by balancing a career in alpine climbing against effectively having a real job. And um and I know that's not really that sexy, but but it's just kind of how it how it's worked out for me and how I've been really successful with this is for years I worked in geology. So I was an international uh, geophysicist working in uh, working as a project manager. A lot of a lot of my time was spent along the Rift Valley in northeastern Africa looking for rare earth minerals. And it was this epic way to make quite a lot of money and not that not that much time. Uh, so I could work for about four or five months out of the year and make plenty to cover expeditions um, and squirrel some away for the future. And, uh, and then also, you know, like feed, feed myself. And it was very convenient that I was going climbing so much during my, during, during the time that I wasn't on those, on those jobs. <laughs> I also just didn't rent a house. I was just, I was just climbing all the time. But by having this having this job that supplied me with enough money to kind of do 
what what I needed, I was able to make my own decisions as a climber. I was able to follow kind of the trajectory that I wanted rather than what maybe my sponsors wanted or what anybody else wanted. I was able to make my own decisions. I was able to have a trip where I didn't get anything done and really have that not be that big of a deal. And that allowed me to go and try some pretty audacious things. And that's that's something that I've continued forward into. And if you read the book, you'll kind of hear that journey of of being in geology and uh, that, that, that being something that I stopped wanting to do due to its geopolitical impact. Subsequently started a film production company that was something that I ran for a bunch of years. And then I moved on from that and, and moved into political advocacy and working with protector winners, which, which is now the role that I, that I take on and, uh, as a, you know, kind of as a, as a day job. And I think that the thing that has been really crucial there has been balancing that that day job or that career uh, with ensuring that I have enough time to go to the mountains, ensuring that I have enough time to train. And also, I, it's worth saying that and ensuring that I have enough time to pursue a romantic partnership mm-hmm. and juggling those three things is not easy. And it is super imperfect. But that's that's, I think, probably my greatest success in many ways has been kind of keeping those balls in the air and uh, still making it to the big mountains, being able to show up motivated and fit, um, keeping Shannon around and really working, like having her be a partner in this whole journey. And then also uh, pursuing a career outside of being, you know, like a pro pro athlete and making sure that that means that, you know, I'm able to make money and I'm able to support myself and I'm able to, to not be totally wed to like success in the big mountains at all costs and instead able to make decisions that um, keep me, keep me safe and mean that I can keep doing this for a long time. Um, well, you kind of alluded to a couple interesting things there. One of them being the, the uh, you were, it sounds like you're a little torn about working to discover new mining opportunities in um, Africa, you know, and now you're working in, for protect our winners, which is a climate advocacy uh, group for the outdoors, and um, you know, a lot of people will levy the criticism of um, we we hear about these you know sponsored athletes going off to the big ranges ten times a year, and you know, talking about climate impacts and so forth when they're you know obviously their carbon footprint is is certainly much larger than the average person who's just you know at home uh shit posting on mountain project and uh you know going bouldering at the gym and stuff like that so um would love to hear about protect your winners you know i i think that on the you know the <laughs> no our Protect winners. our winners. What did I say? Your yeah. You said your winners. <laughs> Andrew doesn't want all, all of our protect, winners. Okay. I, as long as I can protect my okay, winners. It's, inclu- it's, it's inclusive. So you guys can go fuck yourselves. Yes. <laughs> like Actually, I don't really even like my winner. You guys can have it. <laughs> anyway, I, I think <laughs> I think protect our winners is an interesting group because um and Chris and I've talked about this on the show in the past. Um, you know, it, with with people from the yeah. organization, yeah. It's, uh, I think, you know, it's on the one hand, it's, it is the outdoor industry's, you know, face in, in the front of, um, uh, you know, in the battle against climate change. And on the other hand, it seems to also be a way to kind of greenwash a lot of athletes, high carbon footprints and allow them to say that they're, you know, on the right side of history and advocacy and so forth while continuing to kind of lead 
extraordinary carbon footprint lives and so forth. And I hate that term, but I'm just I'm 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 just framing the the critique that people might have about about that group. So how would you respond to that critique and and why don't you point us to what protect our winters has um achieved that you think is notable? I'm super happy that we're getting into this and Andrew, I really, I really appreciate it. Um, we talk about protect my my winters. <laughs> um, since we're since we're talking about my personal story, that's that's where I'll start if that's okay. Um, and so I actually have a background in glaciohydrology. Um, that's what I studied in in university. I've got an academic background in that. That's how water flows over, through, and under glaciers. And as as you might imagine, studying glaciology in the early aughts. You know, climate change is something that that I've been very familiar with for a long time. I don't pe- people talk about how oh I had this I had this moment there I was standing on a peak and I realized oh my god climate change is real and and I, I don't really get to say that I get to say like I studied this shit in university I know it's real and I know it's a huge problem and as I've been climbing in these high altitude high latitude parts of the world I have seen those changes taking place and it is only increased my concern about it. And like many of us, that was something that I, I had pretty disabling anxiety about for a long time. Um, and, and almost all of that was revolving around the fact that there's this perceived hypocrisy around being somebody who really cares about this, who is really concerned about this, but does have a pretty large carbon footprint. And subsequently uh, feels totally disabled in terms of being able to take that conversation on. And I think that's something that a lot of us deal with. And I, and uh, it's really, it's super easy to pick on pro outdoor athletes because folks are so visible because the travel component is such a big deal, but it's something that a lot of us deal with. There are a lot of people who fly a lot for their jobs and uh, and that's how they put food on the table. Does that mean that those folks like have to choose between putting food on the table or or advocating for climate? And and that's that's really kind of the core question that that I was posed by Protector Winners when they first brought me into the fold. And so let's see, it was like 2015. I was um, at the Five Point Film Festival there in Carbondale, um, in your your neck of the woods. And I bumped into some of the some of the leadership team at Protector Winners and they were like, oh, you should come join our team. And I was like, yeah, right. Do you know, do you know how much I fly? Like, I can't do that. And they were like, oh, no, no, you can. Um, and we'll teach you how. And what that what that really all came down to is that we've we've been sold this idea that we solve climate. Uh, we solve the climate crisis through personal change, through flying less, driving less, putting solar panels on our car, on our homes, driving electric vehicles. And and it creates this kind of utopian looking future where we're all in the Jetsons. We're all we're all you know, we've all changed, changed our lives and we're all living, living in this new world together. Now, I think that the the thing is that the idea of personal change as the solution for how we solve the climate crisis is something that's actually been sold to us by the by the big fossil fuel companies. Um, if you want to dig into that, there's there's a great investigative podcast called um, called Drilled that really digs into that whole that whole PR campaign that they ran. It's fascinating. Well, that, but, that, term, uh, that term I just used carbon footprint was literally invented by BP, I think. So totally. Yeah. Exactly. It's and it's and it's it's been really really effective. They like we have these we have these uh, 
all these megacorps that are now kind of able to just like do what they want while all of us just sit and point the finger at each other. And the thing that we've really been working on at Protect Our Winners, and I think a lot of other organizations have been as well, is the idea that we need to worry a little bit less about personal change and worry a lot more about systemic change and changing the system that we live in so that we can continue to progress forward together, continue to do these things that that fill our cup, that inspire us, that give us the tools in order to like progress as a society, to do all those things in a system that is carbon neutral or at least way more carbon efficient. And the way that we do that is not by me um, you know, taking a couple less plane flights per year, the way that we do that is through is through government and through working working with like the big the big industry players. And um, and I will share that I don't really have any um, sway with with BP or with you know the big tech companies. The place where I do have a place to to share is is through community influence, and that allows for us to work in the campaigns and policy space. And that's what Protector Winners is all about. And this isn't, I'm, I'm not going to say that we should just continue on forward without any, um, with any consideration of our personal carbon footprint. I think that our, you know, as we think about how we burn carbon, we should do it in the same way that we manage our bank account. Like you don't just save, like you make money so that you can do things that you really want, but you also need to be um, financially responsible. And so if you look at if you look at like the actions I've taken, like I don't eat meat anymore. I try not to drive as much as I used to. I take less expeditions than I used to. But also like sometimes I need to fly a lot. I'll tell you what, it's this book tour in which I'm going to be doing a lot of advocacy work. I'm going to be flying a ton. Um, and that's that starts here in a couple weeks. And, um, and, and it's something that I really don't like, but that's the only way that I have to advocate and utilize my platform to try to drive that systemic change that we need. And just kind of as a last point, and I'll and I'll stop stop rambling here for a second. But the, I think that I think the the strongest argument for utilizing the platforms that we have for driving systemic change is that there are a lot of us in the climbing community who come from a place of at least some some privilege, having some some cash. And that means that we can be part of this community that is like, hey, I am decarbonizing and I'm buying an EV and I'm going to put solar panels on my house and I'm going to you know, buy that more expensive, uh, that more expensive local produce. And I'm going to be a po- I'm going to have a positive impact on the world around me. And that's awesome. If you can afford that, it's great. You should buy an EV. But as we look at your average American or average global citizen, they're not able to afford an EV. They're not able to afford uh, putting solar panels on their home, let alone affording their own home. Um, we've got a housing crisis in this country. We've got, you know, your average your average American has less than $1,000 in the bank account or in the savings account. And, uh, and so that means that their option, those folks, for, um, you know, taking personal action on climate is to, like, turn off the heat and try to, like, live off of, carrots that they try to grow in their backyard. Um, it's it's something that's super regressive. It's something that means giving up so many of the things that make living in our modern society worthwhile. And if we start looking at systemic solutions, like how do we decarbonize our grid? How do we 
make it so that these megacorps that are burning a lot of fossil fuels don't do that anymore. So that we're cleaning up our air so that we're making so the systems in which we exist are decarbonized, then it allows for us to bring everybody along. And it allows for this to like operate at this nexus between climate action and social equity. And that's like this really potent place for us to do work. And personal change doesn't really fit into that equation very well. Um, systemic so, change. Yeah. So what, what are the system, like quickly, what are the systemic changes that Protect Our Winners advocates for? In terms of the work that we're doing with Protect Our Winners, there are two like big kind of like nodes of work. One is political will and one is social will. And um, in terms of the work that's on like specific political actions that are driving systemic change, um, there are three big chunks of work that are taking place right now. One is actually writing legislations right now referred to as the outdoor state bill. Um, hopefully it's going to be introduced into Congress soon. And that's focused on transmission. So um, you think about all these cars on the road um they're all running on combustion engines or most of them are and if we're going to move all of that on electricity if we're going to move all of our cooking and heating onto electricity it's going to mean we're, we need way more electricity right because we're getting all this power from oil and gas that we're going to move over to to our electricity grid and that means that we need to upgrade our electrical grid and we need to improve and expand our electrical grid and that's like this huge chunk of work that we need to get uh, the government moving forward with. And so Powell is actually working on legislation to move that forward. And that's going to make it so that when we bring clean energy online, we're able to make sure it's able to get to all Americans. Um, and then as we look at kind of things that are hyper local, we're working with um, rural electric co-op. So if you live in a rural area, you have a rural electric co-op, which is like uh, basically a board of people that are elected that make decisions about how a community gets electricity and where it gets community, where it gets electricity from. And so by working on working on those elections, we're able to help elect clean energy champions that are able to make decisions for rural communities to make sure that not only do they, you know, they own clean energy, but that means they have clean air. There are jobs that come from that. Um, and there's also um, just baseline like energy security. And and then a lot of a lot of that work rolls up to this broader goal of protecting the Inflation Reduction Act, which was a huge climate package that we passed just over a year ago. And it's this thing that is really driving a lot of change in terms of money going towards clean energy development. And so a lot of our, our a lot of our baseline work is making sure that that's defended. And that and that really bridges us into election work, which is going to be a big thing next year. You know, we, we, you know, next year's election is going to be a huge deal for just about all of the reasons. And one of those reasons is if uh, we lose the White House, we lose all of our progress on clean energy. Um, and that's like like the Trump administration has pretty much announced that they're just going to tear that shit apart. So um, so those are those are like in terms of the political will side of things, like things that we're really working on driving. And then and then there's this baseline of how do we empower uh, the climbers? How do we empower the skiers and the snowboarders and the runners and the bikers in order to be advocates within their community? And that's that's really what that social will is a big part of is is we have all these pro athletes who are primarily leveraged for storytelling and selling jackets and shoes, um, which is great. We all love it. Um, but how can we get them to utilize part of their platform in order to support uh, clean energy and climate action in the future that we all need? And subsequently, how do we empower 
every climber in America, um, just since we're on since we're on the show, we'll talk about climbers, and that's that's my that's my scene. How do we empower climbers to be climate advocates and use you know just like leverage the story their stories from the mountains from the crags in order to just drive a little bit of conversation about climate action and how we all need to move forward together towards systemic change. Imagine climbing without ethics, without concern for your fellow climbers, where the best among us are merely our employees, and a moral compass so out of whack that stepping over a dead or dying body on the way to your project is commonplace. Well, dear listener, you don't have to imagine this. Just tune into the nihilistic world of 8,000-meter climbing, and you'll find Nietzsche gnawing on the bones of Kierkegaard while Camus looks on. On the latest bonus episode for Rope Guns Only, the runout once again takes a deep dive into the latest news from the rarefied air on top of the world, sullying ourselves so you don't have to, and giving another glimpse of what happens when you throw out the rules and replace them with the endless hunger of Moloch. So join us at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast to get the latest doozy of a bonus episode and all the other bonus material, and to simply support the show. That's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast to become a rope gun today. On today's final bit, we present an original tune by climbing couple Morgan Shannon, lyricist and vocals, and Ben Baltich, guitar and production. About the song Vu, Morgan says, A while back, I took a year-long break from climbing. I was blacking out on routes due to fear. Then we headed up to Planet Vu, where I found mental, not physical, comfort. This song is my ode to Vedavu, the crag that brings pain and pleasure. The Vu is my escape space. Each verse is an experience or joke between climbing friends, and the route names are worked into the lyrics. On my down Hermosa road Where the tractor had once pulled Carrot in my left hand Seven on my right Photograph from Uncle Dave Anticipation of the pain Escaping time without parole Upside down and no control Arrival and company Four star box and a teal crock With me book with me meander down to the barbed wire fence a quarter turn kick past jerry's house edward said he wasn't home had to leave them all alone arrival and company a crystal block and a burly man for me Roddy chop a chartreuse rock abducted here by mother one Car hearts on my legs, bruises on my knee Arrival and company An alien field and a meteor with thee Jam on a cupcake for me. 
we've just finished another episode of the Runout Podcast. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And I'm Chris Caloose, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> Dude, come on. <laughs> because Chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die. That's true. We also have a Patreon that you can support our show at, and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com. No, no, no. It's, no, no. it's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Yes. <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, <laughs> you should go and sign up at patreon slash runoutpodcast.com. No, pot, dot com slash runoutpodcast. Something like that. Give us some money.